When I was first given this passage to speak about, I was given the title, Immorality. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? (laughs) But I've changed it. I've changed it to the call and challenge of righteousness. The call and challenge of righteousness. What do I keep doing that's wrong? That's right. Thank you. Interesting the songs we've been singing this morning. Can I just take a straw poll? Put your hand up if you think that's correct. God is good. I see there's some doubt over here. Oh, okay, good. (laughs) Hold on to that. That statement is going to stay up there for quite a while, and we will come back to it. There's something else I want you to hang on to for this morning as well. The passage we're going to be looking at is interesting in the sense that it's very specific. And actually that makes it relatively easy to unpack from a what-did-it-mean-to-them point of view. But it makes it quite difficult to unpack and generalise to what it might mean for us. So we may be going well beyond what you think might be the horizons of this particular passage. So go with me. Follow, if you can. Okay? Let's read the first half of that passage. This is a translation you may not have come across before, but do follow it in your text just to make sure I've not made any mistakes. Okay? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Everybody's talking about the sex scandal that's going on in your community. Not least least because it's a kind of immorality that even the pagans don't practice. Fancy, a man taking his father's wife. And you're puffed up. Why aren't you in mourning? Why aren't you getting rid of the person who's done such a thing? Let me tell you what I've already done. I may be away from you physically, but I'm present in the spirit, and I've already passed judgment as though I was there with you on the person who has behaved in this way. When you are assembled together in the name of our Lord Jesus, and my spirit is there too with the power of our Lord Jesus, you must hand over such a person to the Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Are you with me? Paul is angry. Yes. He's angry for two reasons. Well, apart from the obvious reason, he's angry because he's written to them before about this. This is actually not the first letter to the Corinthians. This is the second letter to the Corinthians, and the second letter to Corinthians in our Bible is the third. But we don't have the first one. But Paul says that he's written to them before about this problem. So that's one reason why he's angry. The second reason he's angry is that because the pagans don't even do this. And here it is in the church. If you're about my age and a bloke, and possibly the other sort as well, you would have had the opportunity to go to a grammar school perhaps, and you would have been forced to take on Latin and Greek. Please nod somebody and be... Yes, thank you, good. 
And it was always funny being in a boys' school, learning Latin and studying some of the literature. Because one poet in particular, Juvenal, uh, there were others as well, but he was the main one. And the text, we realised, when we were 14 and 15, had been heavily edited. Because it's rude. <laughs> there are sidelong references to sex in Juvenal. There are jokes. And there are entire passages wallowing in material that was deemed inappropriate for schoolboys. What a contrast. Today, it appears that multiple media have thrown modesty to the winds. Every teenager, at least in the West, now has easy access to material that would have made even juvenile blush. The point is this, really. From the perspective of a normal public morality in the 60s and 70s, it was that long ago. 55 years ago. 20, 60 years ago, I was first confronted with juvenile. <laughs> oh, I wish I hadn't thought about that. Um, <laughs> but the point is this. From the perspective of a normal public morality in the 60s and 70s, Greece and Rome still seemed extremely lax on sexual morality. But, you know, even the Greeks and Romans had limits. In most towns and villages, people knew what these limits were. However, normally, they viewed the presence of prostitution, male and female, or the orgiastic festivals associated with some of their temples, such as the Bacchanalia. There were lines drawn. Lines in social behaviour that you stepped across at your peril. And this is one of them. You don't live with your father's wife, your stepmother. Paul's a bit cross. Paul's horror that the church was openly tolerating a situation no self-respecting pagan would have tolerated. We don't know how it happened but the church seems to have connived at it. There's an absence of detail here. Paul is confident that they know exactly what he's talking about. The church, Paul says, is puffed up. You know, we've passed beyond such crude distinctions as good and evil. This hints at a thing which developed into a big question in the early church, antinomianism. I don't need to explain it, do I? Because you all know what that <laughs> It's this thing about grace and sin. If we're covered by grace, it doesn't matter what we do, because we are always covered by grace. So we can sin as much as we want and still be covered by grace. And this is touching on that. Paul deals with that later on, by the way. We know, don't we, that we're saved by faith, not works, by grace not by anything we do. But they thought that meant it no longer mattered what you did. The church was actually seems quite proud of this in Corinth. To be part of a community that's been able to leave behind the normal moral constraints. But it's not just a question of particular morality. You see, the local leadership has become proud throwing moral caution to the wind, as it were. 
They somehow saw it as a sign of spiritual maturity. It's so serious that Paul doesn't even attempt to argue that the behaviour is wrong. He knows that they know it's wrong. It's clear that fellowship, that the witness of the church is being profoundly damaged by the actions of this, this couple. Now Paul's description of the way he throws them out is stark, isn't it? Hand them over to Satan. Actually, it's probably not quite so serious as it actually sounds. Because as far as Paul was concerned, everything outside of the church was the realm of Satan. So putting somebody outside the church just sent them into the realm of Satan, the enemy, the accuser of the brethren. Now I'm guessing, and I'm happy for you to disagree with me on this one, nothing else but on this one, Many, if not most, Christian churches may have given up on the idea of discipline. How puffed up are we? Unable to tell the difference between Christian freedom and scandalous behaviour. Where are the lines that we shouldn't cross? How do you discipline in the church? No detailed guidance. Paul gives his judgement in this one case and that's the end of it. But he moves on to something I think is quite important. Let's read the second half of Corinthians 5. This is verses 6 to 13. Your boasting is no good, says Paul. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven so that you can be a new lump, <laughs> the unleavened lump you really are. It's Passover time, you see, and our Passover lamb, the Messiah, I mean, has already been sacrificed. What we now have to do is keep the festival properly, None of the leaven of the old life and none of the leaven of depravity and wickedness either. What we need is unleavened bread and that means sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in the previous letter, there it is, not to become associated with immoral people. I didn't of course mean immoral people in the world at large or greedy people or thieves or idolaters. To, remove, to avoid them you would have to remove yourselves from the world altogether. No, I was referring to fellow Christians. who are immoral, greedy, idolatrous, blasphemers, drunkards. Hmm, I wonder. No public confessions today, okay? It's a, my goodness, it's a challenging idea, isn't it? You shouldn't even eat with a person like that. Why should I worry about judging people outside the church? It's the people inside you should judge, isn't it? God judges the people outside. Drive out the wicked person from your company. We all understand what the Jewish Passover festival was like, don't we? In, in, in Orthodox Jewish households, even today, parents will hide yeast around the house. And on the eve of the Passover, children will be given a feather... And they work their way around the house, cleaning the leaven out of the corners of the house until the house is completely clear so that nothing can contaminate the unleavened bread used for the ceremony. And Paul uses that as an image, as an idea. Because the centre of the Christian ritual, of course, is the Passover, the Eucharist, 
the communion. The Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The whole of Christian life and witness becomes an expression of that Passover. So it is unleavened. Drive out the wicked person. Ooh, not very palatable to the modern church, is it? Legalism. A bit judgmental. Lacks charity. A bit intolerant. Unloving. But Paul is clear. The church must set the standards, apply them, and be prepared to take appropriate action. Where does all this come from? Where does this call to righteous living come from? We do need to be careful, don't we? That we don't descend into some sort of, what could you call it, candy floss Christianity? A sort of diluted Christianity where the only demand made on Jesus' followers is that they be nice to one another. It could be that Christianity is actually not a big deal. God requires little. The church is a helpful social institution, isn't it? Filled with nice people. Folks like you and me. That may be overstating it a bit. Just a bit. But let's go back to my opening thought. God. Let's add a phrase. God is good to me. Part of the problem we have here is linguistic. Anglo-Saxon is a very economic form of English. And the word good is an Anglo-Saxon derivation. Because often Anglo-Saxon uses one word to cover many meanings, depending on the context. And that's difficult because Greek and Hebrew tend to go in the other direction of having quite specific words for specific things. Very somewhat. But that's the generalisation. So good can go in all sorts of directions. Have you had a good day? Did you have a good holiday? Oh, that was a good meal. I hope you don't find this offensive, but I'm going to challenge you to be clear about what you mean when you say God is good, especially when you add to me. Because what you're actually saying, I think, is that God is being nice or kind or helpful to me. But I want to tell you that wherever the word good is used in God's relation to God's character, it's almost entirely to do with righteousness. When the, God speaks of, when the Bible speaks of God's kindness, it's always explicit and generous and uses that lovely Hebrew phrase, God's loving kindness. Put your hand up if God has been lovingly kind to you. Yeah, you see... We find this notion of the goodness of God far too challenging, it seems to me. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis makes the point with acute clarity. If God really is good, in the sense of being very righteous, absolutely righteous, then he must hate almost everything we do. We daily make him our enemy. 
C.S. Lewis suggests we have cause to be mightily afraid. German theologian called Richard Niebuhr puts it like this. It's like having a God without wrath, bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without the cross. I'm not going to read that again. You get the, you get the gist of it. But... God's righteousness is combined with something else. Yes, his loving kindness. And out of that grows the provision that Gary's interpretation of Jane's tongue mentioned. The provision that enables us to stand in the presence of an awesomely righteous God, and that is grace. Let's just step aside slightly for one minute. Did you know that in the Gospels, Jesus never asks his disciples to obey either him or the law? <coughs> Puzzled? Jesus never asks his disciples to obey him or the law. Forget the translations that you've been reading. Here you are. You know every time I speak, there's a bit of Greek in the education. What I'm going to suggest to you is that the term Jesus uses is the verb to keep. He says, keep the law, keep my commandments. And it's a different word to obey. He says, for instance, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It may be just a subtle distinction too far. Okay? U-P-A-K-O-U-O. Upakuo. Funny word. That one means to obey. This one, Tereo, means to keep. And it is this second word that Jesus uses every time in relation to the law or his commands. Ah, it's a subtle distinction too far, isn't it? Why bother? No, I don't think so. It's the same phrase used in keeping the Sabbath, keeping the Passover. It's the same phrase used in keeping a garden. It's the same phrase used in keeping livestock, keeping sheep, that we'll come across in the Bible many times. It implies a caring for, an engaging with, a working with, a maintaining, preserving, husbanding, cultivating, holding on to. It implies living in a transparent relationship with righteousness. Do we? Do you? Do I have this sort of living relationship with the righteousness that God demands and which Paul is saying God demands of the Corinthian church? Perhaps we need to just re-examine what it means to hear the voice of Jesus. To understand the context in which he came. And hey, to know his commands. Did you know that even the command, love one another, isn't Jesus, it's John? <laughs> Let's just think about that quickly for a while, shall we?
I think part of the problem may be that the voice of Jesus gets muted by a cacophony of other voices, most of them on the internet these days. We perhaps find Paul easier to access, or maybe even the voices of leaders and teachers in the church, altogether more amenable. Second, we do tend to ignore the context in which Jesus lived and worked out his ministry, that we can easily miss the impact of his call and demands. We can unintentionally dilute his discipleship claims. This is about covenant, and we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Thirdly, if, we need, if we're to follow his commands, if we're to keep his commands, his demands for righteousness, we need to know what they are and how they impact on our living. But let's address the question now. This call to righteousness, it's easily misrepresented. We know that we're not saved by our own efforts to conform to the law. It's by grace that we are counted righteousness. Did you know, in fact, there are only four references to grace in all four Gospels? Jesus never discusses grace. But he speaks of righteousness 24 times. Jesus also sets the bar very high. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus explains that unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a nice thing to say, isn't it? But it's Paul, 89 times in the course of his letters, who develops this understanding of grace. And there are 35 other references in the New Testament. It's a profoundly summed up in Ephesians 2.8. I'm sure you know it. For it is by grace you are saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's God's gift. Not a reward for work done. There is nothing for anyone to boast of. We are all God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for the life of good works which God designed for us. Actually, it would be wrong to set too much store by this sort of numerical approach. There are lots of aspects of the faith that Jesus never mentions. Uh, you won't find anything in Jesus about the gifts of the Spirit or the government of the church. Paul develops all those ideas. But, 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 I think it is appropriate to set alongside all of this Jesus' clear concern for and exposition of the claims of righteousness in the lives of his disciples. I think this tension between grace and righteousness is genuine. But here we come back to covenant, because you see all the biblical covenants of which Jesus was a part in completing the old and instituting the new are grounded in grace, properly understood. Legalism never comes into it. But the gracious foundations of the covenants never diminish the divine call for righteousness. After the flood, God establishes a covenant with Noah which grounds the divine promise to restore and sustain the creation in the demand to steward the earth and respect its life. For Abraham, the promises of almost incomprehensible blessing are grounded in the demand to walk faithfully. 
The escape from Egypt leads to Sinai and the demands of the law. It should therefore come as no surprise to us that the new covenant, instituted by Jesus' atoning death and resurrection, leads to the self-denial and cross-bearing summons. How does it affect us? Well, an initial clue is in that quotation from Ephesians. Our salvation is not won as a reward for good works, but we are created in Christ Jesus for the life of good works. Grace can only be received, but good works are the appropriate outworking of salvation received through grace. Second, we understand that we experience the once-for-all atonement of Jesus' death. We experience the transforming power of the Spirit of God. And through Jesus, we experience the internalization of the law. This is what Jeremiah said about this new covenant. This is the covenant I shall establish with you after those days, says the Lord. I will set my law within them, writing it in their hearts. I shall be their God and they shall be my people. Here's the difference between the old covenant and the new. The old covenant was like a policeman. It worked from the outside in. But in this new covenant, grace compels us, I believe, to respond to Jesus' all-encompassing call to righteousness. It seems that grace, thoughtfully received, never leaves us unchallenged and unchanged. And my thanks go to Max here, because about two or three years ago, he identified this characteristic of the Christian life, the daily receiving of God's grace. It never thoughtfully received, it never leaves us unchallenged and unchanged. We are moved and empowered to follow and to respond to Jesus' summons to righteousness. But what are Jesus' commands? We're coming to the end. Be encouraged. What are Jesus' commands? Well, let's have a starting point, and I'm going to challenge you to seek out his commands at other times. In Matthew 5.17, he says, Do not suppose that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to complete. Now, we often take that out of context, and we build up an expectation that it just means that Jesus will live the law perfectly, and then his final atoning sacrifice will release us from it. Don't think that's quite right. It's taking it out of context. The new covenant, you see, does not dispense with the law. It involves its internalisation in the covenant people. It's written in their hearts and minds. It's the law that Jesus articulates for the last days. Don't get upset about the meaning of last days. It just means the time since Jesus right up to now. We know that there were those who willingly tried to keep the law, and many who didn't. 
But we do need to recognise that the aspects of that law are adjusted by Jesus. They're mediated by Jesus. And I want to give you three ideas, very quickly, that will enable us to handle what Jesus' commands and laws might be. The first one is that Jesus is rather like a filter. There were certain aspects of the law which with him became obsolete. The temple sacrifices had been fulfilled in his death. The circumcision of the flesh is superseded by circumcision of the heart by the spirit. The external function of the food laws is replaced by the internal witness of the spirit as to what defiles a person. Think of Jesus as well as a lens. In his life and teaching, he refocused what had been obscured by tradition and the teachers of the law. He actually invalidated many contemporary interpretations and he restored the original intention of the law. I mean, I'm just going to throw out these headings and you can begin to pick them up if you want to. Mercy to sinners. That's a bit revolutionary, isn't it? Care for the needy. That's in Luke 10, of course. The conduit of Sabbath blessings. (laughs) Speaking truth. My goodness. Here's another one to think of. Jesus as a prism. Jesus, this is meant to be by way of encouragement, but Jesus continually raises the demands of righteousness to new levels. Shouldn't be surprising because the new covenant is about the kingdom coming on earth as in heaven. Instead of murder, we have the prescription against anger. Instead of adultery, we have the words that speak against just lusting. Hey, chaps, the male gaze. Just think about that for a while. He adjusts his followers' use of the law to enforce rights. He lets them say, no longer, duty is not rights. He extends the command to love from neighbours to enemies. How can we possibly live out this demand for righteousness? It's not just about being nice and avoiding difficult lifestyles. But any honest assessment shows that we don't live up to it. Sorry. I don't live up to it. How can we adjust to that? Well, there are some hints here, I think. The first thing is that Jesus' kingdom is an inaugurated kingdom. It's here, but not yet complete. So with us, we're not finally transformed yet. We live the experience of this inauguration. We experience the struggle to keep in step with the Spirit. We don't struggle to obey or to keep commandments. We struggle, I I do, I don't know about you, but I do, to stay in step with the Spirit. We are disciples in the now but not yet state to live faithfully in relationship to Jesus' summons to righteousness. The second thing is, I think an answer derives from the idea of covenant. In the Old Testament, the covenant established a recurring pattern of events and celebrations that reminded God 
of his grace in redeeming them from slavery and exile and embracing them in his law and adoption of them as his people. It was a daily, weekly, seasonal, annual realignment with God's grace and his demand for righteousness. Now I've already mentioned that similarly we who inhabit this time of the now but not yet kingdom we need, thanks Max, this daily renewal of grace. The same grace that initially ushered us into the kingdom. It motivates, empowers us to respond. Second, the answer derives from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Do you know, I couldn't sing some of the words from our songs this morning. I couldn't sing that goodness was chasing after me. Because I had in my mind this awesome, righteous God. Admittedly, it was a bit of a one-sided picture. I wasn't thinking of the loving, kind God. But the thought of being pursued by an awesome, righteous God was terrifying. I can't stand in his presence as I am. But you see, the Holy Spirit will remind us what Jesus taught, bear witness to him, guide us into truth, make known what is to come. Jesus says he will take what is mine and make it known to you. So our response then to Jesus is to love, but to bow in submission and with a profound desire to keep his commandments to husband his righteousness. We've not won his favour. We've received his grace. This work of grace in our lives, our sanctification, if you will, is an ongoing process. We are indeed changed from the inside, but it takes time to permeate our thinking and actions. Okay, four things to challenge you. God is good. Take care what you mean. Seek daily grace. Three, find out what Jesus' commands actually are. Third, no limits. There must be no limit to your goodness. Wow. As your heavenly Father's goodness knows no bounds. Can we pray? Yahweh, Elohim, Abba, Father. We acknowledge that you are a God awesome in righteousness before whom we could not even stand. We acknowledge that when we do stand in your presence it is because of your grace the door was so opened that you could come in.
that unmerited favour, won through the sacrifice of Jesus the Messiah. Help us to seek daily grace. Help us to know and keep your, your commands. Holy Spirit, guide and shape your disciples. Help us, Father, to take that Passover feather into our own lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>